Hello everyone, I'm uh, Jacob Link. I'm one of the Associate Managing Editors at the uh, HPR. And uh, here today we have Joe Hacke, a former congressman from Nevada, and uh, Amy Dacey, former head of the DNC and uh, former head of a uh, Emily's List, as Correct, I understand. Yes. Yeah. Um, so thank you for being with us today. Um, we really appreciate some of the uh, expertise you guys can bring to this. Um, so I guess my first question would be kind of, in the broadest possible terms, what do the results of this midterm mean to you? So we now have a Democratic majority in the, uh, in the House, probably going to total around 35 seats by the year, uh, once everything is counted. Uh, several lost seats in the Senate, uh, which will probably be three, depending on how Florida go. Um, and then I think seven, depending on results in Georgia, we'll have around seven gained governorships for the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So several movements in different directions across the board. So what, uh, what should we make of that like as, as a political class? Uh, whoever would like to start. Yeah, I, um, well, I think for, for me, it's kind of the results that we thought were, were going to happen in a lot of respects. Maybe the numbers are a little different, but I think this is where we thought the breakdowns were going to happen. To me, it's like everybody got a little bit of something, you know, um, on election night. I do think that I am, you know, pleased that the Democrats won the House. Obviously, that's a, a game changer for us, you know, as a party and, you know, how we move forward with that and, and try to work together the best way possible will be interesting as we move forward. As you mentioned, governor's races are incredibly important. I would also say one of the biggest things for, for me was the Democrats being able to flip seven legislative chambers and, and get gain of 375 seats in the state legislatures. Now, I will say that there was filling a large deficit that had happened over the last several years, but those are going to be there's there's instant you know changes that I think we'll see. But some of this what was happening with governors' races and state legislative races will have a long term impact with redistricting, with how we recruit, how we how things play out in 2010. So I do think there was a lot that really happened Tuesday night. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree, and I think obviously the. Republicans maintaining control of the Senate, perhaps adding a couple of seats. Uh, we'll see what happens with the Mississippi special and uh, with the Arizona race. Uh, it may wind up where it was at 52-48, just with different faces, or it may be 54-46. Uh, uh, and I think uh, similarly, while it doesn't necessarily change what happens on a day-to-day -day basis in the uh, tactical sense, uh, in the strategic sense for the Republicans to maintain control of the Senate gives them the ability to continue to shape the uh, membership of the judiciary. And so I think there will continue to be the Republican imprint put on uh, the federal courts as well as potentially another Supreme Court seat uh, over the next uh, two years of the remaining in the Trump presidency. Yeah. So I'd like to loop back to this topic of particularly the Senate writ large. Um, but first, I want to talk a little bit about polling, which you mentioned. So it seemed to be uh, contrary to 2016. I think the general the impression that uh, kind of the average reader of the news got is going to be more or less in line with the results that uh, you know came out with the polls, with a couple exceptions, most notably in Florida. Um, so as far as, uh, I think through the past month up to the election, almost, I think every poll but one showed uh, Andrew Gillum leading uh, Ron DeSantis going into that race, um, which obviously didn't, isn't quite how things have panned out. So kind of, I guess, as an initial impression, do we have a, an idea of how that sort of discre discrepancy emerged? Um, was there, were internal polls for the parties better than what kind of was being released to the public? Or what, uh, what kind of expectations kind of should we have emerging from this? Well, I think it's a good question. I, listen, po polls are... A 
tool you use to execute strategy. It's it's not a crystal ball that tells you exactly what things are going to look like on election day. I also think a lot of these races that were within five points either way, these are tight races. I mean, when you see what's happening uh, in Florida, like one person might have been up here or there, but these are razor thin margins in a lot of these states that you're seeing. And, you know, I think that a, a lot of, of what we're seeing is um, it was interesting what the New York Times did with live polling, you know, and I, and I think this is also a tool the pollsters are using. And I think they're thinking about how are they calibrating? How are they using that to try and help campaigns figure out how to use strategy? But for the public at large to use those as a determine about what things are going to be like the day after election, I think you have to be thoughtful about what that is. I think there's been, while polling in the 2018 cycle got better than it was in the 2016 cycle, I still think there's significant discrepancies between what we're seeing in polling and actual outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the Nevada races, uh, leading up to election day, uh, they actually had the Republicans for the governor and senator seat uh, winning. They both lost. And they lost outside the margin of error. Right, so not only were they wrong, but the, I mean the discrepancy was larger than what they were polling. So I, I think, it's, as Amy says, they're a tool. But having run races and watching in the last two cycles, yeah. they are not as useful a tool as they used to be. Gotcha. Well, and I think that's uh, Nevada's interesting point because, uh, well, I guess as the results have shown, so Jackie Rosen, having just won that seat for in the Senate, uh, followed. Well, I believe it was the same path you did out of uh, District Three, mm-hmm. then into into the Senate race. Um, so. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about, like, you know, the, I guess from a Republican perspective, uh, what Dean Hiller's optimal strategy in that state is, whether that's closing up to Trump, whether that's trying to maintain a respectful distance. Um, in the final days of the race, at least in the media narrative, there's a lot about how um, I think the comments on him turning, everything he touches turns to gold, kind of was perceived as him kind of making the final move to snuggle up. Um, is that kind of your perspective? Is that what you see is happening in the race? Yeah, I think Nevada has become very interesting over the last decade. Uh, where it was a purple state, which I believe now has become a blue state. Uh, you know, the last three presidential elections, it's gone blue. Um, with the uh, every one of our state constitutional offices going blue this cycle, other than our sec- incumbent secretary of state winning by less than a point, uh, but losing the governorship. Um, I-, I think right now in Nevada, it's, it's just a sheer numbers game. It doesn't make a difference. You can be the greatest candidate and run the best campaign. It's a math problem. Right, based on voter registration and the lack thereof uh, on the parts of Republicans, and so there's you know 77,000 voter gap uh, going into the race. Uh, Dean Heller uh, loses Washoe County, his home county, by four points. That's incredible. Uh, loses Clark County by 13 or 14 points. I mean, the rule of thumb has always been lose Clark by less than eight, win Washoe by four, and clean up in the rurals. And if you can do that as a Republican, you can win statewide. Um, I won 16 of 17 counties in the 2016 Senate race, but lost the race because I lost Clark by 11 points. It was outside that margin of losing by eight. Uh, And it's all because of the population base and the incredible turnout machine and registration apparatus that the Democrats have in Clark County. Gotcha. I I would just add to that, to your specific question, uh, part of the question about the Trump factor, you know, in these elections. And it was interesting. I don't know, um, Joe, I don't know if you got to watch the press conference yesterday. Um, It was one of those, I didn't want to watch it, but I couldn't look away moments, you know. So, but when I was watching it and and the president was going through and talking about people who didn't campaign with him and like didn't embrace him um, and lost, I, I think... Somebody should remind him there was also 32 races that he actually endorsed and supported, and those candidates lost too. President Obama went to places and support, supported you know, the candidate. I think we have to really look at like 
how these candidates ran their campaigns too. You know, Trump was on the ballot in a lot of respects. I mean, seven out of 10 people who, you know, in the exit poll said that they, Trump was a factor in their voting. But in a lot of these races where people won, Republicans won races because they were talking about the issues. They were talking about what was happening. And although Trump was a factor in a lot of these places, I I do think it wasn't a, a clean determinant. Obama went, didn't go. Trump went, didn't go. Nobody wins a race or loses a race by one reason, right, Joe? I mean, we've right. been there, you know. So I, I think that's something that that you know you have to consider too. But I think there was probably a big impact amongst the nonpartisan voters in the state of Nevada, right? Mm. So you know, there's roughly a four and a half percent voter registration gap deemed lost by five percent. Historically, the nonpartisans break center right, uh, but a big portion of the nonpartisans are located in the suburban parts of Clark County, and as we've seen, the growing gap amongst Republicans in the American suburbia. Uh, I think the Trump effect may have had an impact on which way the nonpartisan voters went right. in good Nevada. Point. So I, I don't want all of this podcast and talk entirely about the president, but uh, one aspect where I think uh, there's something interesting is uh, the massive success of women uh, in this cycle. Yeah. Um, so I think at the end of the day, depending on how some the final tallies go, we're probably going to have around 100 women uh, elected to the House, uh, 14 in the Senate, uh, regardless of the outcome of the Arizona race. And then uh, two states have elected their first female governors, uh, being uh, Maine and South Dakota. Um, so, broadly, what can we say the ramifications in the chambers will be to see the sort of changing demographic? And, well, Amy, I have a specific question for you. Uh, what, sure. what do you think is next for uh, Emily's less specifically right. uh, in terms this is, pro- I think, broadly can be interpreted as a pretty successful uh, cycle for Emily's list. And so, <laughs> it wasn't bad. It's one of the ones I like. <laughs> <laughs> so, what does that mean going into 2020? Uh, does the strategy stay the same? Uh, are there, is there potential for things to change? What are we looking at? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Listen, I, you know, to go to your point, we had twenty more than 20, 270 women running for Congress or governor, governor this cycle. Um, Emily's List endorsed in more than 570, you know, races. This was huge. This is the year of the women. This was a pink wave, as some people were saying. And I think the bottom line is when you look at the House, it's Emily's List endorsed candidates to win the House. They won more than 23 um, candidates, well, my list endorsed women, female candidates won the House. So this was huge about the power structure and what happened. I will say this, it, there was so much enthusiasm, over 40,000 um, uh, women joined up online at Emily's List and said either committed to run or committed to help somebody that was running. This is a long term. You know, this isn't a moment in time. This is a long term strategy. And so it'll be incredible that we're sending so many um, women to, to Congress. It'll be incredible that they are diverse individuals too. I mean, we uh, saw uh, 44 women of color, um, you know, in the, in the house. And, and I think that's really important. Now, we will also say that the work is never done. Uh, we were at 20%, you know, before election day. This will increase it to, I think, maybe 22, 23%. The work is not done. And until you get parity, you still have to do this. I think the tactics, this is what you do every time after a race. The tactics that worked, you're going to double down on. They really invested heavily in, in down ballot state races, um, statewide offices, um, the work that they do. They're building up. I started the state legislative program at Emily's List back in the day. And so you see this investment early on. And then, there's women, Stacey Abrams was a rising star that started out at Emily's List in the races that she was running down ballot all the way up to governor. So that long-term investment in women, I think, will go on. I think they'll look at what the map is next year, um, and they will certainly support and expand their program. They've got more donors, more members than ever before, and they'll count on them to do that. But, you know, I think the other thing is there was a lot of races that were won by women in very tough 
districts. And so I think a lot of what Emily's List will be doing is ensuring that they're reelected too, and that'll be a big part of the strategy. So a uh, broader question on, I guess, strategy for the parties. Um, so the Democratic path to victory this time, at least in the broader narrative so far, has seemed to be through the suburbs. So in Texas, you have Texas 32, Texas 7, both going Democratic, uh, Colorado 6, uh, Barbara Comstock losing in Virginia 10, uh, Kansas 3, Sharice David's victory. So most of these pickups have been like in kind of suburban areas, uh, traditionally slightly, well, uh, slightly better off, uh, you know, leaning right. Um, and some of the races that Democrats are really excited about in more rural America failed to pan out. So I think West Virginia 3 is a big example of that. Um, um, I think Kansas 6 with Andy Barr, Amy McGrath race is another example. Of course, there are counterexamples. I think like uh, New Mexico 2, uh, Huichilter is small, just, I think, just today uh, mm -hmm. has announced victory there. So I think there's a lot of evidence here um, that you can make a number of different interpretations on in terms of whether Democrats uh, have a future in rural America or um, if Republicans are going to have continued problems in the suburbs. Uh, what are you guys' takes? Yeah, well, I think to be successful, both parties have got to look at where they the weakest and work to, to fill those gaps, right? And so for Republicans, it certainly is the loss of uh, the voters in suburban America. So my district, when I had it in Nevada 3, it's a suburban district. It also happens to be kind of the, the most well-educated, most affluent uh, district in southern Nevada, actually in Nevada. Uh, and so it's gone blue the last two cycles. And, and I think there's a, for, there's a disconnect between the Republican Party and educated women voters uh, that make up the predominant population in suburban America. And that's, that's our weak point. And we've got to figure out how to address that weakness. Um, and I'm sure, you know, the Democrats will need to look at how they are going to be able to make inroads into, you know, rural red America. Uh, it's just, it's sustainability and viability for the long term. You can't leave any vote uncontested, and that means you've got to figure out where I'm weak, why I'm weak there, and what can we do to make sure that, you know, we are reaching out to those communities in order to try to get their votes come the next election cycle. Yeah, I would agree, too. It's like you said before, Joe, it's like it's math and it's geography, right? And it's like trying to figure out those two pieces of it. I will say that the Democrats have to do a much better you know, job. And I think we saw a lot of investment this cycle in targeting and where they were going to go. Again, I go back to some of these legislative districts. They were making sure that they were recruiting. You got to recruit candidates in places before you can ever win, right? And we can't see to not have candidates in districts and running or we shouldn't expect to win in those areas. So I do think that there, um, some of these state legislative races are a good way to get into rural communities and like put out a, a message that can resonate with voters and then win in those areas, and that has a long-term advantage. I will also say that the gubernatorial wins in Pennsylvania and Michigan and, and Wisconsin are significant, and not just for 20. 10, you know, 2020 implications, but also to look at those states and, and you know, as Joe mentioned, where are we weak and how are we building up in, in, in places that we might traditionally have had. And, and I think those governor's races were a big win for us on Tuesday. Yeah, so I guess a little more on the uh, governor's race. There's a lot of talk about to rebuilding the blue wall, if you will, in the Midwest uh, yeah. for the Democrats. Um, but insofar as the elections now don't actually change what the election totals, you know, voter totals will be on 2020. What is the significance of those gubernatorial and uh, legislative victories? Is that within the machinery of the party? Is that inspiring donors? What, um, what can, what, I guess, what's the, uh, what's the upshot of these victories for the Democrats? Uh, well, I think for me, when you're looking at the, the battleground states in 2020, like you want to certainly have, it, it was also a big impact if we lose the governor's race in, in Florida, once that's certified, not having Ohio, those have big negative impacts, impacts too on 2020. I would always much rather have in our battleground states 
statewide office holders that are Democrat governors, senators, not only does it and the ballot help energize, but, you know, it helps with um, the state parties and what they're able to do, you know, for, for infrastructure and on the ground and donors and activism. And so it's a better position to be in to have more um, statewide office holders, congressional districts, state legislative districts that are Democrat. When you're Democratic, when you're going into uh, a presidential where those are going to be really key states that you have to win and, and you know, to have a coordinated campaign that can really emphasize and, and do that. So we've got some advantages and some some of these states, but then we're going to have some challenges and others that really matter if you're looking to get to the 270 in a 2020 race. And I think uh, while we'll still have an intervening election before the next decennial census and redistricting, obviously, you know, you, you'd like to have the gubernatorial mansions and the mm-hmm. legislative chambers uh, of whatever party you happen to be of uh, when it comes time to redraw the maps. Um, but I think, as, as Amy said, going into the 2020 election cycle, uh, the more electeds you have of the respective party, uh, I do believe generates a better uh, turnout and grassroots organization for that party in the presidential race, which is one of the reasons why I believe Nevada didn't uh, do as well as we could have in 2016. We did not have uh, what we needed in the legislative races. Gotcha. So I guess moving on a little bit to the uh, Senate now. So uh, obviously the direction of the House elections is kind of the opposite in the Senate uh, in as much as Democrats ha- Republicans have a pretty solid majority now. Um, it looks like they'll probably probably be taking the race in Arizona. Um, so as far as narratives about this election go, is geography really going to be destiny for the parties here in the future? Um, I look here to Texas as maybe potentially a counterexample to that narrative, in as much as we have Beto O'Rourke losing the election, but closing it to within three points, which, uh, as far as I'm aware, hasn't happened for a very long time for Democrats in Texas. Uh, in, Wendy da- uh, in 2014, Wendy Davis, another race Democrats were really fired up about, uh, the Democratic candidate for governor uh, ultimately ended up losing by 20 points. So this is a big shift. Um, and so is this a sign that maybe geography just broke against Democrats for this race? Or, or is there going to have to be a rethinking on how Democrats run in rural America if they want to win the senatorial chamber in 2020 or 2022? Well, I, I think, you know, listen, Democrats were not under any illusions. This was a very difficult map, this cycle. We were defending more than, you know, uh, then we were trying to go after new um, uh, new states. And it was just a very difficult map. So we always knew, you know, when we we're going into this, certainly taking back the Senate was going to be a huge challenge. And then I think, like, listen, these were also in a lot of red states, you know, that, that uh, we had uh, 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 sitting, you know, Democratic senators and trying to hold on to that was difficult. Now, having said that, there are indicators that we have to see, you know, I want to spend more time looking at the numbers in these states, but it was a big blow uh, for the Democratic Party to lose um, Senator Donnelly and Senator um, McCaskill and Senator Heidkamp. Um, there was, uh, is it the nationalization, you know, of these races? Um, was there a lot going on with the Kavanaugh hearings and with, with Trump really spending his time on the road in those states campaigning? I don't know if it, because they were so nationalized in a lot of respects, did they not have, you know, it was at a disadvantage to them running in those places. Um, but I think it's certainly a challenge for Democrats. I mean, the consequences are there are going to be a lot of judges that are going to be able to be confirmed, you know, through the Senate uh, cabinet secretary replacements that will happen. Um, and it's going to, you know, you never want to try and pick up more seats. Having said that, moving into 2020, I think it's it's a better map. We have might have more, cha- you know, um, chances there. But this was this was a tough election for us on the Senate. I don't think you can draw any conclusions from the one election with, that took place within Texas. Yeah. So I think it was rather unique 
because of the two individuals that were running. That's a good point. Right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'd like to see, you know, what happens next cycle and whether or not there's a closing of the, the DR gap mm-hmm. uh, in Texas. But you look at somebody like Beto, very, you know, a, a millennial, charismatic, you know, mm-hmm. did all 200 some, 50 some odd uh, counties yeah. in Texas, right? It's so, exhausting right, just thinking about that. I thought you know, doing a full grassy in Iowa must have been hard. Um, but, you know, doing uh, uh, doing what he did versus, you know, a very different personality in Ted Cruz, I think that that race was more about the two individuals that were running that closed that gap, not necessarily geography or, or voter demographics. Uh, and likewise, yeah, the map is going to be very different uh, come the 2020 race. And, uh, you know, the Republicans better take advantage of the 52 to 54 seats that they have for the next two years, mm-hmm. because I don't think they're going to be in that position come 2021. So um, I'd like to make a, uh, I, I ask you both about, I guess, some of the um, the split ticket voting we've seen that had to occur uh, in a couple of the Senate and like a smaller Western state, particularly in the case of uh, Joe Tester, which is uh, Tester, uh, once ballots are officially counted, will probably have emerged uh, by a th- uh, probably won by a three-point uh, three margin, whereas Greg Gianforte in the House has uh, you know, won by a five-point margin. So there's a body of uh, voters in Montana that's clearly split their votes between these two. Um, and is this, don't, no, uh, not to focus too much on the race in particular, but as far as strategies for uh, candidates that are trying to win in split-ticket races, I think a lot of the Republican candidates in New Go- or candidates for governor in uh, New England have had to do something similar. What sort of broad strategies are these candidates of both parties going to have to do if they want to emerge uh, kind of unscathed in the era of Trump? Yeah, well, you know, but Montana's always kind of had that history of, us, of being a split-ticket kind of voting state. And, and I do believe, though, that while there are still some split-ticket voters out there, that that number is markedly diminishing as time goes by because of the increasing polarization that we're seeing between the parties and in the general electorate as it is. Um, but in, for those members that run in, in those proverbial swing districts, right, you know, the roughly 35 to 45 swing districts that still exist of the 435, um, you've got to count on, on split ticket voters if you want to win. I mean, you've got to you've got to make sure that you're reaching out to every voter in your district, not just your ideological base, because you cannot win in those swing districts if you just are going to count on turning out your base voter. Uh, whether they're nonpartisan voters that break one way or the other, or trying to get as a Republican, trying to get the you know the center left Democrats to see mm-hmm. that uh, you know I'm the better option for them in in this swing district. It, it's got to be a critical part of any campaign plan, especially in those those swing districts. Yeah, I think that's it's it's so true. And Montana is a little bit of a different example too, just because of you know uh, some of these other states. If you see it, you know. Uh, Florida to me is like seven different states in one state, right? Where Montana is just by like you know the makeup. Um, it's it's a different. You're talking about a different, you know, uh, with the one congressional district, one senate district. It's it's interesting how that works out. So with um, Democrats now in control of the House, uh, the battle for speaker is broken out, uh, and it looks like because of the margin victory for the Democrats that um, that. Uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi might not have to worry quite so much about the number of Democrats who are pledging to vote against her uh, in that race. How do you guys see that um, race for the Speaker's gavel uh, shaping up, and how do you see its ultimate um, impact, uh, its ultimate results impacting uh, what comes for the next two years? Yeah, I think for me, I'm, I'm you know, I think uh, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Leader Pelosi. I think she's done an incredible job. You know, some candidates in their district didn't, you know, certainly said they wouldn't vote for her for Speaker, but she 
did an amazing job raising the resources and doing everything she could support, you know, the DCCC and the caucus to, to win those races. And so she's a huge part of that victory. I think now what you'll see is, is as the leadership race uh, goes on, you know, does she have the votes to, to kind of, you know, move forward? I, I think, yeah, I think so, you know, and I think that she will be the speaker. But I also think that whoever is the new leadership on either the Republican side or the Democratic side has to do an amazing amount of work to reach out to these new members, um, uh, a lot of them to make sure that they feel a part of the governing aspects of, you know, leadership, um, that they're a part of the conversation about decisions being made about how they're pursuing, you know, what issues to, to go after. And they have to work collectively, you know, as a caucus. And I think who's ever leading both of those sides has to have time to have a two-way conversation with their caucus. And I think she's quite capable of doing that. And then we'll see soon, you know, how that works out. Um, but I think there's a lot of talent, you know, within the caucus too, that whoever the leader is should lean in on to, to make sure that we're, they're strong and not any kind of division within the caucus. So looking forward on messaging, I think, particularly uh, for Republicans, um, with you know, midterms being much lo uh, lower turnout, I think you have the potential for perhaps uh, different narratives than are going to present themselves in 2020. Uh, particularly as regard uh, immigration and, I guess, the focus on the economy. How do you see the messaging for the Republicans uh, shaping up for the next two years? And particularly, how do you think it's, it might change from kind of the trajectory for 2018 has been? Well, I, I thought that, the, quite honestly, the, the messaging should have been more focused on the, the robust economy through this last election cycle and drawing more attention um, to the, the gains that were being made from an economic standpoint. Uh, rather than some of the more divisive issues like going off on a, a debate uh, over immigration. So, so my hope is that uh, moving from 2018 to 2020, that if the Republicans want to try to recapture seats and maintain what they have in, in the Senate, that they're going to need to focus on a, a message that resonates, as we were just talking about, across the ideological spectrum to voters uh, that reside in suburban America uh, and, and work to try to capture those votes. Uh, if we continue to go down you know, these ideological rabbit holes, we will not be able to get those split ticket voters or the suburban you know, woman voter back in our corner. And, and, if, and if we're unsuccessful in doing that, then we will continue to lose seats in those areas. So I guess, um, I think probably, probably, this, probably the last question, I think, for the podcast. But um, as far as if you had to make a prediction for the next two years, and as we've learned in recent politics, that's always difficult. But what would you expect in terms of broad political trends to change or remain the same based on what we've seen in these election results? It's a really good question. I, I think that this is this is the the moment in time as we, we gear up toward this presidential election that, you know, my hope is that uh, with a, a House that's Democrat and a Senate that's Republican, I, I hope that the House leadership will um, there will begin to be moments where they feel like they have to hold the administration accountable and they'll have to decide appropriately based on what their role in that is to do that. But I also really hope that we see um, a proactive message and conversation around the issues that people really did care about in the midterms. And although, you know, midterms traditionally are lower, you know, we saw approximately 114 million, according to the exit polls, 114 million votes were cast in U.S. House races this cycle. Um, compared to 83 million in 2014. So 
these might be like lower level turnouts of presidentials in 92 and in 94, but people turn out because they were looking, you know, for something and wanted accountability also with their membership. Um, so I think that I'm hoping to see that activism continue as a trend. I don't want after this midterm that there to be any less, you know, activism or, or outreach or, or a conversation around that. I think the Democrats are going to have a very crowded field in the primary. Um, and my hope is that we have a really robust primary and a conversation, but we're making sure that there's Democratic surrogates and whatnot that are holding Trump accountable to, to, you know, his messaging and, and what his vision is, you know, for the country. Um, and I'm hoping that the work that the committees did to really branch out and go into areas and recruit candidates everywhere continues on. And I think you'll see that investment um, happening. Uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen about money in politics. I mean, $2.3 billion was spent, you know, in this election cycle, more than the last presidential election cycle. So that will be really interesting to watch and track about how money will play out in this next election cycle too. But these are some of the things that I'm just looking at as we kind of move into this national election coming up in 2020. Yeah, I, I think Congress is being given an incredible opportunity uh, once the new Congress is seated in January. Uh, you know, there's a there's kind of a fork in the road where they can either go down the continued path of you know bickering and obstructionism on, on both sides, or they can look at this uh, you know election outcome as a referendum on how well they are doing their job, which we all know is in the low teens according to the American public, and take that as a message to say let's really try to get something done on behalf of the American people and maybe get our numbers up above 20 percent before 2020. Uh, you know, an infrastructure bill would be a prime example where they might be able to reach out across uh, the aisle and working with the administration in the White House to actually get something done. Uh, my hope is that they can show that there is some functioning form of government for the sake of our democracy before the 2020 cycle so that people uh, have hope going into the 2020 election and don't see more of the same over the next two years. All right. Well, Joe Heck, Amy Dacey, thank you for, thank so much you. for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks so much. Again, this is Jacob Blink with the Harvard Political Review. Uh, thanks for tuning in.